Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Alex Philp. I'm the Director of Overseas Collections Management here at the National Library of Australia. As we, we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank their elders, past and present, for caring for this land. We are now privileged to call home. This weekend is the second of our experience, China Weekends, where we explore Chinese culture, cuisine, art, landscape and architecture as part of our public programming for Celestial Empire, Life in China, 1644 to 1911. Now, before we start, can I just first get a show of hands from those of you who are visiting the library for the first time today? Fantastic. I wish you in particular a warm welcome to the library and I'll see you on your many visits in the future. Celestial Empire has been an outstanding success. It's presented a story of Chinese history that's clearly resonated with the public. The extraordinary number of visitors to the library for the exhibition and for events such as this tells me a few things. It tells me that Australians are interested in our region and in the world. We want to know more and we will come in, tens of, in our tens of thousands to exhibitions such as this. The success of this exhibition and of those that have come before tells me also that the library has a central role to play in Australian storytelling. I'm immensely proud to work here. The library's been collecting Asian language material in large numbers since the 1950s. It also makes me proud that we're showing the Australian public what is, what is their collection of rare and unique Chinese material. And I'm sure that you'll have a look at the exhibition downstairs after, after today's seminar. Celestial Empire and its public programs would not be possible without the support of a tremendous group of partners. It's been an extraordinary collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, I thank the National Library of China for sharing its treasures with us and with you. I thank our partners, Shell in Australia, The Seven Network, Wanda One, Optus Singtel, forgive me, I can't re remember all these, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels, and our event partners this afternoon, the ANU's Centre for China in the World, and the Asia Society Australia for their generosity. I thank our government partners, the Australian Government, for support through the National Collecting Institution's Touring Outreach Program, and the Australia China Council, and also the Australian Government through Visit Canberra. And particularly, I thank all of you for joining us this afternoon to hear from Jing Hongzheng. Jing Hong is a postdoctoral fellow at the Australian Centre on China in the World at the Australian National University. As an anthropologist, her research focuses on Chinese culinary culture, in particular tea, and the interaction of lifestyle choices between China, Taiwan and the West. Her doctoral research explored how pua tea, originating in Yunnan in southwest China, was transformed into becoming a popular beverage in 21st century China. This study resulted in the publication Pua Tea, Ancient Caravans and Urban Chic, published in 2013 by University of Washington Press. Today, Jing Hong will pick up the strands of this research for us, looking at the beginnings of the industry as a cottage craft, producing what was considered to be an ordinary everyday tea and how it became increasingly popular and valuable achieving cult status, not just in China, but around the world. Please welcome Jing Hongzheng. Uh, 
And thank you, Alex, for introducing me, and uh, thank you for coming, everybody. Um, it's my pleasure to give the talk here today. Um, as Alex just introduced, I'm, I'm a researcher from the Australian National University, and, and I'm originally from, from Yunnan in southwest China, and that was um, part of the reason that I chose poverty originating in Yunnan as my uh, research topic during my doctoral research at the ANU. Um, so in today's talk, I'll base upon the uh, publication that Alex uh, mentioned um, to um, uh, share some knowledge surrounding poverty with you. And I know a lot of you uh, are, are having growing interest in, in tea, and so um, I, I will be um, more than pleased to um, answer your question after, after my talk. Um, so first of all, um, I would like to um, give you a bit of information about my research. As Alex just mentioned, um, my, my research um, was looking at how poor tea um, was packaged from an ordinary commodity into um, a treasured goods that has very high profile in 21st century China. And in this process, I did um, anthropological uh, fieldwork in multiple sites so Yunnan, especially southern Yunnan, uh, a village called Yiwu that I'm going to show you later, is the major uh, field site, um, fieldwork site for me. Uh, but at the same time, I also realized that in order to explore the biography of poverty, I had to explore um, outside of Yunnan. So I also paid uh, visits to other places, um, the, the so-called consumption, major uh, consumption areas for poverty in Guangdong, Hong Kong, and also a short visit um, to Taiwan. And uh, in, in today's talk, I will explain to you um, why I need to do such multiple um, field site, um, uh, multiple sited field work. Um, so my my um, my research mainly looked at the the recent or the current issues, but actually historical parts are also important for me to explore. And in today's talk, I will um, especially I will highlight how um, um, poverty's historical past has been shaped uh, by the Qing China's uh, control um, in its um, borderland area in Yunnan. And also I want to highlight how the, um, um, the historical past has been used by nowadays poverty act actors um, in packaging the profile of poverty. And if, if time allowed, I would like to share some um, general knowledge about um, the processing and categorizing and identifying poverty with you. Um, so first of all, what is poverty? Um, this is actually a very uh, complex question um, to answer because there are multiple versions about the definition of poverty. So in my book, I tried my best to offer not singular but multiple versions of, of poverty's definition. But in terms of the shape, um, poverty can be um, in loose form, as you see uh, in the picture. Um, these are the two types of um, loose poverty originating from different uh, sub-tea regions in Yunnan. So it's a little bit like, like wine. Um, uh, different climate, different soil can provide a different taste of poverty. Um, so different regions have their different tehua. So these two loose uh, form of poverty has different color, as you see, and also uh, they have different flavors. 
Um, but more popularly, poor tea are made into compressed form, either um, like a break or like um, what's so-called, um, um, like this one is the, uh, people use bird's nest or bow um, to describe the shape of the tea. Um, and also, maybe you have uh, you have seen a lot of poor tea are made into a round cake, and usually uh, seven cakes are put in one stack, and each cake usually weighs um, around 357 grams. Um, and so seven, um, seven cakes are put in one stack, and they are the so-called seven cakes poor tea. And in terms of the location of poor tea among all sorts of Chinese teas, um, so let's look at this, this map. Um, actually, in China, green tea is the, um, the most dominant tea being consumed by Chinese, either along the Yangtze River or, or, or along the Yellow River. Green tea is the uh, popular tea. A lot, of, a lot of you may also know that jasmine tea could be a kind of representative of Chinese tea. Um, it's popular in North China, but jasmine tea is actually could be a kind of scented green tea, so experts usually categorize jasmine tea under green tea. And in China's southeast, like Fujian or Guangdong uh, provinces, oolong tea is popular. Um, Taiwan is also very famous for oolong tea, and a lot of immigrants um, actually in Taiwan originated in Fujian province. So Taiwan shares the similar oolong tea culture with China's southeast regions. Um, for Yunnan, uh, actually, um, green tea has been popular, but since the um, late 1990s and early 2000s, um, poor tea became more and more important. But the concept or the definition of poor tea was actually very vague for Yunnanese for a long time. Nobody really cared what poor tea was. Um, they didn't care this until um, the late 1990s or early 2000s. Uh, so this is the story that I'm going to tell you today. And, um, but in fact, another region in China, uh, Guangdong, Cantonese people have been drinking poor tea uh, perhaps even longer than Yunnanese. And this consumption demand from Guangdong, from Cantonese, have really shaped the recent popularity of poor tea in Yunnan and also all around, all around China. Um, and also, let's look at... Um, the categories of Chinese tea in terms of the um, tea processing methods, um, especially uh, fermentation or oxidation. Um, um, so green tea belongs to, um, is a kind of non-fermented tea, like the famous uh, dragon well tea in Hangzhou or other sorts of Chinese green tea. They are non-fermented. Um, a oolong tea is categorized under um, partially fermented tea. And black tea, which is very well known in Australia, uh, belongs to fully fermented tea. Um, the way of categorizing poor tea is very complex. And so um, poor tea actually covers both non-fermented tea and fully fermented tea. Part of poor tea is called raw poor tea. Um, it is close to green tea, 
but different from other sorts of green tea um, that cannot be further fermented. Uh, rural poor tea has the potential uh, to be further fermented. And so uh, through a kind of um, transformation or transformed stage, rural poor tea can develop into a fermented poor tea, um, the other type on, on the bottom of, of um, uh, in, this, um, in this picture. And, um, but under fermented poor tea, um, there are uh, further, there are two kinds. One is the so-called naturally fermented poor tea, which means if the fermentation goes on in a relatively natural environment. Um, so um, throughout ages, often over like 20 years or 50 years, um, the tea will touch um, the air, and so oxidation or fermentation would go on. Um, fermentation here mainly refers to um, uh, microbial and enzymatic reaction. Um, but I'm not, I'm not a scientist. Scientists may um, point out there, uh, this is not right and uh, there should be more clear uh, boundary between oxidation or fermentation. Um, but this is not the focus of my study, so I'm more um, citing other people's writing about the differences between fermentation and oxidation um, to talk about natural fermentation. And the other type of fermented purity is called artificially fermented purity. Um, so by subjecting uh, purity materials under a controlled um, uh, temperature and uh, humidity, um, the fermentation uh, could happen in shorter time. Um, so if we say natural fermentation would need um, over 10 years to happen, um, then the artificial fermentation uh, could go on maybe just within two or three months. But this technique um, didn't happen uh, in China, actually in Yunnan, until 1974. Um, for the taste that we, um, for the taste descriptions, usually people use flowery, uh, fruity, uh, grassy to describe uh, raw poor tea um, because it is close to green tea, um, so it could be very astringent. Um, uh, but the most appreciated value of raw poor tea is its lingering taste. And in Chinese, we say it has very good hui gan, uh, which means you, you can feel the sweetness after bitterness. So it's not direct um, sweetness, but somehow you will feel the sweetness after experiencing uh, bitterness. And in terms of Chinese medicine, uh, raw poor tea is cold for your body, uh, cold for your stomach. So um, people who have stomach illness are not encouraged to, to drink very raw poor tea. Um, for fermented poor tea, um, the usual terms um, to describe it is um, earthy, moldy. Um, this is for smell, right? And when you swallow it up, you usually can feel it is very, it is smooth or it is um, direct sweet. And in terms of Chinese medicine, um, fermented poor tea is warmer um, compared with raw poor tea. And it, it is even said um, after drinking um, fermented poor tea, um, you, can, you can still sleep well. Um, because usually we, we worry about that tea will, will make, make us uh, awaken um, in, the, in the evening, right? But it is said fermented poor tea will make you, you will feel okay even after drinking a lot. 
And so the, the color of these two uh, brews are also different. The one on the left um, is, looks green, right? So it is the raw purity, and the right one is fermented uh, purity. For artificial ferment, fermented purity and uh, naturally fermented purity, um, you will have to find ways to tell their differences. Um, they, they either smell differently or they taste differently. But they have a major uh, difference from raw purity, uh, wh whose color, um, the, the color of the brew is, is very different. Um, but nowadays, the definition for purity is, is very vague. So um, in terms of um, aging, in terms of fermentation, and there hasn't come out a clear um, saying um, to, to define how many years old of purity can be called aged. And also, it has to, it has, um, it matters um, 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 which place you store the purity, whether you store it in a dry place or you store it in a humid place. Um, but generally, or roughly saying, uh, if a tea is over 10 years old, um, people would declare it is an aged purity. Um, these two pieces of tea cakes. Um, I took their photos in Singapore when I was there in 2007. Um, both of them uh, are more than 50 years old, and each cake was sold at 18,000 Singapore dollars. So uh, Singapore dollars now has um, almost is the, the, the same amount of Australian dollars. You can imagine how expensive they are, and maybe they are more expensive um, this year. And, and so the, the concept about aging purity has been popular in China and also in Yunnan since the uh, mid or late 1990s. Um, but I, I don't mean that um, if you go to the market, uh, you cannot aff afford to buy any purity. Uh, if you want to buy raw purity, you can still afford to, to buy it. Because there, um, but um, and a popular uh, or a general principle on purity is that the older the tea, um, the more expensive or the more valuable it is. So this is very different from other sorts of tea, which are mostly appreciated for their uh, freshness, but poor tea is valued uh, for its aging, uh, for its storage. Um, as I said, this concept didn't exist in Yunnan until quite recently. So in order to answer how this has uh, come into being, we have to uh, explore this region, Yunnan, and uh, to understand its historical past. Um, this is a map of Southeast Asia, and you see that Yunnan is um, in southwest China, and it is part of um, Southeast Asia. In terms of geographical significance, it has been argued by scholars as an important link uh, between Southeast Asia and inland China. Um, Yunnan is well known for its diverse um, ethnic groups, and currently it has 26 ethnic groups according to the official um, recognition, including Han Chinese. Um, but Han Chinese actually didn't arrive in Yunnan until the 14th century during the Ming Dynasty. So that, that was the dynasty just prior to the Qin Dynasty. Um, and it means that Yunnan used to be inhabited mainly by uh, all sorts of um, so-called um, minority, ethnic minority groups uh, like Yi, 
by Hani Bulang or Hani Bulang. These are the ethnic groups that had made big contributions to um, to tea cultivation. And this is a further um, detailed map about Yunnan. Um, and this is the Mekong River. Um, so along this Mekong River, um, there are uh, plentiful tea resources, uh, mainly located in um, three sub-districts of Yunnan called um, Lingcang, um, Simao, and uh, Xishuang Banna. And Xishuang Banna in English literature also appeared as Sipsong Banna. Um, and, and so um, these areas have plentiful tea resources, and the major um, tea plant is the so-called um, big tea leaf in contrast to the small tea leaf that is more popular in East China. And so this type of uh, tea leaf actually shares similarities with the, um, the tea category in India. So they are, um, they are in the same geographical region. Um, and this type of tea is regarded as suitable for making, for making poor tea. Um, but the name of poor tea um, didn't um, originate in any tea plant um, or tea processing method. Rather, um, it was named after a place called Puar, a town um, in, called Puar in southern Yunnan um, that had been a very important um, taxation and uh, goods distribution center uh, since the early 17th century. And at, at that time, um, these tea regions were under the control of Dai, uh, an indigenous regime called the Dai State. And so Dai State was not under direct control of Qing Empire at that time. They paid um, tribute to Qing Emperor, but they also had a very close relationship with the bordering um, uh, countries like uh, Shan State, which locates in nowadays Myanmar. Um, and so um, um, the, the, the map that you see now is the current map, um, but uh, um, back into the early 17th century, um, the, the, the map could be very different. Although Purity was named after the, uh, the place, a town called Puar, but the more famous Purity originated um, um, in a place called uh, Six Great Tea Mountains. So it's um, these shadowed um, areas in Xishuang Banna. It's in the east bank of Mekong River. So this is the capital city of, of Xishuang Banna. And this area is, um, has been very well known for producing uh, poor tea. Um, before Han um, immigrants came to Yunnan, um, the ancestors of indigenous people have been cultivating tea trays uh, for at least uh, um, uh, 1,000 years. Um, and, and as I said, Han um, people didn't migrate to Yunnan until the 14th century. And for Han traders, they didn't enter the tea-growing regions until um, the early 18th centuries. Um, but also around the same time that the Qing Empire wanted to expand its control into the borderland area, 
Um, so um, starting from the early 18th century, they gradually conquered the local regime, the Dai state. Um, and uh, um, they had a political reform called Gaitu, Gaitu Guiliu in Chinese. And in English, it, it is translated as um, replacing the uh, indigenous officials with imperial officials. Um, so with this political reform, um, these uh, more uh, regions that has two resources were um, under the control of the Qing Empire. And in 1729, um, this is an important year, because in that year, um, a prefecture called Pu'er uh, Prefecture was established in this town. And so the um, tea growing in regions in the east bank of Mekong River was removed from the Dai regime, um, and they were added to the Pu'er Prefecture. And so that means the tea resources area could be under direct control of Qing um, rather than by the, uh, by the, by the Dai state. And uh, um, some, some scholars have argued this is actually a tea war because the purpose of, of, of Qing uh, Manchu um, for launching this fire was actually to, to grab more resources, including tea uh, in Xishuang Banna. And soon after um, the establishment of the Pu'er Prefecture, um, uh, the, sixth, uh, the six great tea mountains became the base for, tribute, uh, for, sen for sending tribute tea to Beijing for the Qing emperors. Um, and I forgot to point out that this place is called Yiwu. Um, it is one of the uh, tea mountains among the six great tea mountains. And so this is the place that I stayed for uh, more than half a year for my uh, field work. And so um, this is a picture of the uh, golden melon tribute tea uh, sent from Yunnan to Beijing Emperor um, more than 150 years ago. So it means this tea is 150 years old. Um, but. Um, the, the, the Qing Emperor, because they got all sorts of tribute from different um, places in China, right? So they could not finish uh, drinking this tea. <laughs> so this became a kind of relic, a royal relic. Um, and a famous saying tells us that uh, the royal families liked uh, both dragon well tea and uh, uh, poor tea. And it's said they like drinking uh, dragon well tea in summer. Um, but they like uh, poor tea in winter because poor tea is warmer and the winter is cold. They want something warmer, right? Um, but but uh, actually a convincing um, saying is, is that because um, um, the royal families, they were descendants of the northern nomad in, in China and meat uh, was their staple food. So in order to balance the greasiness um, in the meat, they have to find something um, to help with their digestion. Um, poor tea made with um, big, leaf, um, big leaves from Yunnan uh, seemed to work very well for balancing uh, greasiness. That's um, one of the major reasons that they, they liked poor tea. And so um, after, after uh, Qing 
uh, collapsed and replaced uh, by the Republic uh, of China. This tea was stored in the museum, Palace Museum in Beijing. And later, after the establishment of the People's Republic of China, this tea was um, moved to Hangzhou um, in a tea museum in Hangzhou. Um, but in 2008, this, this tea uh, was sent back to, to Pu'er in Yunnan, which I'm going to um, talk about more later. Um, in Yiwu, there are also other families who send tribute to Qing Emperor. Like this, this family, um, they also send their tribute to Qing Emperor, and so the emperor awarded them this signboard. Um, there, there are four characters, Rui Gong Tian Chao, which means um, tribute to emperor. And so the emperor gave them this signboard to, um, to praise them. Um, to, to, it's a kind of evidence that the emperor uh, appreciated their tea. But um, this signboard, uh, um, this picture was taken by me in, in 2007. And, uh, uh, but I was told this signboard was not the original because the owner actually worried that the original one might be stolen or might be grabbed, and so nobody actually know where the original one was. But anyway, they just put this imitated one, uh, this copy there. And also maybe in some tea shops or in market, you could see, you may came, came ac come across the same signboard with the four characters, uh, tribute to emperor. And so in Giwu and also the nearby um, tea mountains, there were um, many tea families. Um, and each family has their uh, has a processing unit. Um, um, what's interesting is that Xishuangbanna is a place dominated by um, Dai ethnic group, but Yiwu um, has more inhabitants um, um, from uh, Han Chinese. And so the, these Han immigrants, their ancestors came from another part of, of Yunnan. So in this, in this place, you can find a lot of Han-style courtyard houses. And the tea processing was usually uh, done inside their houses. And after the tea processing was finished, um, in the past, before modern transportation happened, um, uh, came into being, um, these teas, along with other goods, were carried out uh, by horse or mule caravans from Yunnan towards outside. And so these routes connecting Yunnan and outside with tea as one of the major uh, goods was named by uh, scholars in 1990s as um, tea and horse trading route in Chinese. Cha ma, cha ma gu dao. Cha is tea, ma is horse, uh, gu dao is ancient roots. Um, it is a quite a kind of poetic um, um, term, so it has been, um, this term has been uh, popular since that time. Um, so starting from the southern part of Yunnan where tea grows, um, there are diverse routes for, for tea um, being carried out. Um, so in addition to Beijing to inland China, uh, another major route was towards Tibet. Um, so this is a very long way towards Tibet, and it could um, take um, many months, even half a year or one year, for the tea from southern Yunnan to arrive in, in Tibet. 
And another important route for poor tea to be um, exported was um, through the southern way um, to Southeast Asian countries. But actually, countries like Laos, Vietnam, uh, Myanmar, they didn't really demand purity from Yunnan, but they more functioned as a transit for purity to be further carried out towards um, places with Chinese inhabitants. Um, and one of the major routes was towards um, Cantonese um, uh, living areas like Hong Kong. Hong Kong people, as I said, have been drinking poor tea maybe even longer than Yunnanese people, and they demanded a specific type of poor tea. And this is a, a tea house that I visited. Um, it's called Lian, Lian Xiang Lou. It's an old-style Hong Kong ram uh, cha place. If you go there, you will, you will find it, it is very noisy uh, from the morning um, to the evening. Um, and so when people eat snacks like dumplings, um, they drink a lot of tea. And as I was told, among um, 10 guests, eight, uh, eight of them would choose poor tea. Maybe the left, uh, a few uh, will, will choose like uh, dragon well tea or uh, woolong tea. But poor tea was the, uh, is the dominant one being consumed in these ramcha restaurants. And the history of drinking poor tea in Hong Kong could be traced to the late Qing Dynasty, which means um, the, the, um, the late 19th century, um, although the, a very clear date is not known yet. Um, but when poor tea from Yunnan uh, arrived in Hong Kong, uh, Cantonese people actually found um, the rural poor tea is very, is very astringent. Um, um, and maybe the local climate in Hong Kong uh, made people feel that they, they could not um, drink very astringent raw poor tea. And therefore, um, they prefer to, um, not to drink it other, uh, until after the tea has been stored for some years. And so um, um, the way of fermenting poor tea um, began to happen. Although there is another way of um, explaining the fermentation of purity, which says um, the natural fermentation of purity actually happened on the back of horse and mule caravans. So it, it says that along the long route of carrying purity out uh, with sunshine and rainfall, uh, fermentation could happen on purity. But this is, sounds more like a legend. Um, to me, a more convincing uh, saying is that fermentation is a, a preference by Cantonese that they prefer to age the tea, to store the tea. Um, they would not like to drink the very raw or astringent poor tea. Um, so a lot of poor tea um, um, were accumulated, uh, were stored in Hong Kong. Um, but a very important event happened around 1997, uh, when Hong Kong returned to the mainland China. And so a lot of um, people in Hong Kong, including owners of poor tea or ramcha restaurants, they worried about um, the political uh, transformation. So they sold out their poor teas to other people. And the biggest buyer at this time was um, Taiwanese. Um, as I said, Taiwanese um, more drink uh, wulong tea rather than poor tea. Mm, but uh, in 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 nineteen in late nineteen nineties, um, a lot of uh, actually starting from nineteen eighties, a lot of Taiwanese connoisseurs 
they visited Hong Kong, they um, discovered that the poorest taste would have a, a dramatic transformation after it has been aged. And also they realized um, this tea has great um, potential value to be further promoted. And so um, they decided to discover the origin about poor tea. Uh, a very interesting part about poor tea's history is that um, it is not Cantonese in Hong Kong um, or people in other Cantonese regions who had the interest in finding out uh, the origin about poor tea. Instead, it was Taiwanese who had this um, aspire for discovering more about poor tea. And also at the time, the door of China was opened. Um, the, um, the reform and opening policy was launched in China, so it was available for Taiwanese to visit, to visit mainland China. And, and so um, in 1994, as I, um, I, from my interview um, with some Taiwanese and also um, locals in Yiwu, I was told in 1994, the first group of Taiwanese people visited Yiwu. Um, but they were very disappointed um, because what appeared in front of them was a ruined and depressed Yiwu. Um, because um, uh, although the, the, the tea industry in Yiwu had been um, booming in late Qing and early Republic period, but during Second World War and during the fight between a nationalist and a communist party, and also uh, during Cultural Revolution, um, the so-called traditional way of um, um, processing poor tea uh, had been lost. Um, but Taiwanese connoisseurs, they brought wisdom. Um, um, they aged the poor tea that they bought from Hong Kong. Um, they, they showed this to the local people in Yiwu and asked them to um, restart the way of handcrafting, uh, the so-called traditional way of making poor tea. And finally, a, com, a, com, um, a kind of cooperative work uh, between Taiwanese connoisseurs and the local Yiwu people um, started uh, around the late 1990s. And here, um, and, and then since then, um, the, the industry of making, of producing purity had been restarted in, in Yiwu and also other um, tea regions in Yunnan. Um, so what is the traditional way of uh, making poor tea? I would like to show you briefly um, the process of making uh, poor tea. First, um, um, it's the rough processing. So this is the place, Yiwu, that I stayed uh, for quite a long time. And not far from their uh, family houses, there are the tea uh, mountains, um, usually, um, tea sprouts in spring and also continues in summer and autumn. But summer has a lot of rain, so um, tea produced in summer is regarded as inferior with inferior quality. So the major um, harvesting season for poor tea is in spring and autumn. And there are two kinds of tea plants, and this is the so-called terrace tea because. Um, they are planted in terrace form, um, popul um, uh, densely populated, um, um, populated, and so pesticide or fertilizer may be applied on tea. Um, but it's very easy um, to pick. But another kind of tea, and 
which I showed you um, just now, it was it is the so-called forest tea. They were planted by the ancestors of the indigenous people many, many years ago. It's very tall, it's harder to pick. Sometimes people have to use this kind of wooden um, stick to climb onto the tree. And this tea tree is, in, uh, is said to be 800, more than 800 years old. And so they are more, um, now it's more used for looking, uh, appreciating, rather than for harvesting. Um, there are different shapes of tea leaves in, in this region. And as I said, it is a large leaf tea, so some tea leaves could be as big as, as your hand. Um, this is a standard way of picking tea, one bud, two leaves. Um, this is an alternative way of picking tea. As long as the stem is slender, um, you can pick it up. And usually people use um, um, basket um, to contain the green tea leaves. And they carry it um, um, back home. And the next step is to take out um, the bad leaves and then it comes to the uh, procedure of stir roasting tea in a cauldron. Um, this is actually the same cauldron that they used for cooking uh, their rice and the vegetables. Um, but after cleaning, um, they also used the same cauldron to stir roasting tea. Um, because um, the temperature is, is high, so they use bamboo stick um, to do the stir roasting. Sometimes they wear gloves. And then um, it comes um, the procedure of rolling tea. Uh, the function of rolling is to give a shape to the tea leaf. And then um, put the tea outside. And the color of the um, tea will be changed, and also it is dried. Um, some people prefer to dry it indoor. Um, but if sometimes it, it is cloudy or it is rainy, um, they have to... Uh, launch a, make a fire um, to further dry the tea, to roast the tea. Um, and here, um, they are, the, the, these are two traders coming from outside. They are trying to identify whether um, this tea is good or bad. Um, you have to compare um, their color, their shapes, whether um, they are from forest tea or they are from terrace tea. Um, but a more a uh, popular way is to taste the tea rather than just uh, looking at them. Only through tasting, you, you, you can find the, uh, whether the taste um, is good or not, whether it is the authentic uh, sixth-grade mountain tea or it is actually from Sichuan or actually from another province. Um, and this trader got uh, one kilogram of poor tea. And in 2007, even one kilogram of poor tea um, cost um, more than um, around like uh, 100 Australian dollars. So since it is so expensive, so a tiny bit of weight um, would matter. And so this is the end of the, of the rough processing they store the tea at home and waiting for uh, it being um, uh, further processed. And then um, fine processing. Um, the first step for fine processing is to take out um, bad leaves um, 
So it's a very, it's, it could be a very boring work, and you have to be very careful to find out what is good and what is bad. For example, the one on the left, yellow leaf, is regarded as an inferior. And so the fine processing formally starts. Usually um, three or four people um, uh, forms, form a group to do the fine processing. Um, they put the uh, loose tea in an iron um, cylinder um, and then steam the tea. When the tea becomes soft, they put it into a cloth bag and then use hand to give it a shape. Um, it is a round, to, to give it a round shape. And then somebody would stand on a stone press to compress the tea. And this man is an expert of producing stone press. Um, so this is the so-called traditional way of handcrafting poor tea in Yunnan, in, in Yiwu. Um, but um, nowadays, people also use the machine um, to do the compressing. And after compressing, the tea um, is left indoor uh, for a while and or put outside for drying and then gathering for uh, wrapping and further dried. And then seven um, cakes uh, are put in one stack and give it a seal um, to show the brand, the, the tea brand of this family. And then um, six stacks are usually put in one basket um, for trade. Okay, um, so um, since the, the visiting of Taiwanese to Yunnan, um, poor tea has been promoted with um, a lot of values, great values. There are the so-called four prominent values of poverty. Uh, the first is its financial value, because a lot of people use poverty as a as a way for investment. So they buy the tea not for not because they are interested in drinking it, but they want to store it, and they hope that one day the tea would become very expensive. And also, um, it has health value. A lot of advertisement have been um, telling people that poor tea is good for all sorts of things. Um, it's good for beauty. So th this, this tea is advertised for its um, increasing beauty for women. Um, and it has tasting value. And a famous saying is that once you love the poor tea, you would never drink other sorts of tea because of its lingering taste. And also cultural value. Um, so the ethnic groups of Yunnan are used as one important element um, in, this, in this packaging. Um, this way of having in, um, indigenous people wearing their costumes to make tea didn't, appear, didn't exist in Yunnan. Um, but this, this was a kind of advertisement um, since um, to early 2000s. And the important event happened in 2005 when a new caravan organized by Yunnan government and the traders um, started their journey uh, from Yunnan towards Beijing. So they were imitating the old caravan to carry poor tea as a tribute to, to Beijing. And the poor tea arriving in Beijing uh, were auctioned at astonishing uh, price. And also in 2008, um, the, uh, the gold melon poor tea um, stored in the museum, um, was sent back to, to Yunnan, and it said now that the, the, the tribute tea is back home. 
And also uh, in the same year, um, the sub-district, which um, used to be called Simao, uh, changed its name um, to Pu'er. So um, originally only a town in this sub-district was called Pu'er, but now the whole sub-district is called Pu'er. Um, so this is also a way of promoting the profile of Pu'er tea. A lot of people visited um, this golden melon uh, tribute tea um, because it is so old and it's... Um, but according to some experts who had a little bit of taste of the tea, um, they, they told people that um, this tea is still tasteful. Um, it has an aged appeal. And soon after um, this event, some imitation um, pieces appeared in the market. So for example, this one, one piece weighs um, two and a half kilograms, uh, was sold at... Um, um, over two thousand Australian dollars um, with limited supply. So, um, in this talk, I have um, highlighted that historical past has been shaping the recent popularity of poverty, um, and also um, the current actors have been using history as an important element for them to package uh, a good, uh, high profile for for poverty. Um, but in, in reality, there are a lot of counterfeits appearing in the market. Um, so in order to identify uh, authentic from counterfeit, people um, have to um, taste different types of tea and to try to understand the different terroir of tea. It's more or less like uh, you learn how to taste wine. Um, but although, I, as I said, history has been used uh, um, as an element in packaging poverty, um, there is not a singular historical narrative about poverty. Rather, there are multiple historical narratives. Um, but still, um, according um, in, to my investigating, investigating experience, I think knowing about history um, still makes me feel that the taste of poverty um, more interesting and more meaningful. Um, and finally, I want to... Um, Nice. 